0: This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start with breaking news. Stocks plummeting as the coronavirus spreads amid serious concerns that experts worldwide might not be able to contain it, along with fears of a global financial slowdown becoming more real. Take a look at the Dow Jones right now, finishing down more than 1,000 points at the closing bell. Well, it's about to close and it's around 1,000 points. Parts of Italy, the world's eighth largest economy, now on lockdown with the largest concentration of coronavirus outside of Asia, also hit hard. South Korea, the world's 12th largest economy, also seeing a surge in coronavirus cases. Let's go to CNN's Allison Kosick at the New York Stock Exchange where the bell's about to ring. And Alison, this is the first time we've seen investors react so dramatically to the impact of the virus.
1: Yeah, investors certainly have woken up today, haven't they, uh, Jake? You know, the surprise spike in the number of coronavirus cases and those cases popping up in countries outside of China, that's what sparked this dramatic sell-off today. One of the big worries is that the virus could spread to countries that would not be able to contain the virus. And so we see the Dow now closing down over 1,000 points. That means the Dow has erased all of its gains for the year, even getting into negative territory for 2020. So with investors now paying attention, they're reassessing the impact of the coronavirus, not just on the global economy, but on companies as well. And that's why you're seeing shares get hit. Everyone from airlines to theme parks like Disney down 5 percent, cruise lines like Royal Caribbean down more than 8 percent. You want an analogy? You look at the U.S.-China trade war in 2018, 2019. That was the wild card. Jake, the coronavirus is going to be the X factor in 2020. Jake.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Alison Kozak, at the New York Stock Exchange, where this market is down more than 1,000 points. Let's bring in CNN Global Economic Analyst, Arana Faruhar. Arana, thanks for joining us. To be honest here, I'm confused because the coronavirus has been spreading throughout yeah. Asia and the world now for weeks Um, What makes today so different for investors?
2: You know, it's really a perfect storm. You've now got markets falling in Japan, in South Korea, in Italy. You've got American companies issuing warnings saying we're not going to meet our revenue expectations because of this. And you have China. Fundamentally, you have China playing a much, much bigger part in the global economy. If you look back um, 20 years ago at the SARS epidemic, for example, China was 4% of the global economy. Today, it's 16%. So Mm -hmm. what happens there matters.
0: Uh, And the Dow has now lost all the gains it made so far in 2020, it's still obviously up quite a bit. Yeah. But is are those losses bad for 401ks, other investments that rely on the stock market?
2: 100%. And you know what's interesting is coronavirus was going to be bad no matter what because of the, the weight of China. But it's pushing this sort of nervousness that already, already existed in the markets. We are at the tail end of a recovery cycle. We've had a lot of juice put into the stock market over the last couple of years. Investors are ready to be worried about something. It's also making people really focus on the U.S.-China trade conflict and whether that has, in fact, been resolved. You know, we've seen this trade agreement, but this process of decoupling of those two economies, I think a lot of uh, CEOs I talk to are taking a very close look at doing business in China and what the risks are going to be going forward. And that's going to have an impact on their profits, on their supply chains, you know, beyond just this quarter.
0: Can you compare the potential impact uh, of the coronavirus to any other economic crisis in history? Is there anything that you're you're hoping it doesn't get as bad as, or anything that? what comes to mind.
2: You know, it's interesting. There's no perfect analogy, but I would compare it to a natural disaster like, for example, the tsunami that we saw a few years back in Japan that disrupted the auto supply chains. What's different this time around is you're going to have a couple of quarters of big impact, but I think that you are going to see decoupling speed up because of this. I think that the fact that the Chinese um, regime was not transparent about what was happening with the virus, the fact that we are still so vulnerable to supply chains in China, I think a lot of businesses are just going to say, you know what, this is the tipping point and we're going to see that pulling away.
0: Several companies, as you mentioned, Apple, Coca-Cola, General Motors, American companies have all warned that the coronavirus could hurt their sales. How long do you think this might linger in 2020?
2: I think it's going to linger at least for a couple of quarters in terms of the real economic hit. But I think the question then is, how is the world going to shift? You know, is the U.S. um, and China and Europe, are we all going in different directions? Are technology companies going to have to find new places to produce their semiconductors? Who's going to buy Apple products in China now? Are we going to be entirely separate um, tech ecosystems? I think those are the big questions.
0: And obviously, this uh, plays into politics. President Trump uh, has as his Perhaps the strongest argument for his reelection, the fact that the economy is doing uh, so well, that could affect his reelection chances
2: yeah it 's really fascinating there's sort of two trends pushing and pulling at the same time you 've got coronavirus potentially causing a real headwind to the economy around November, the time of the election. If the economy's not strong, then the president loses one of his major uh, arguments on on the stump. On the other hand, you have markets saying, we don't think Bernie can win. We'd rather have Trump than Bernie. Bernie's now looking like, you know, he's possibly the Democratic nominee. So there's a real push-pull, and it's hard to see where the markets are going to be and where the economy is going to be around this in November.
0: Interesting. Rana Ferrar, thank you so much. Obviously, this is also a human tragedy, primarily a human tragedy. Let's go to CNN's Melissa Bell. In Italy, where coronavirus cases suddenly surged past 200, the largest cluster west of Asia. Uh, Melissa, it, it's this speed of the spike that has so many people concerned.
3: That's right, Jake. We were looking at fewer than five cases at the end of last week thursday friday we're now at 229 confirmed cases italian authorities have just confirmed the seventh death and what has that meant it's meant the for the first time a western liberal democracy having to lock down entire villages and towns some 100,000 people in northern italy right now are essentially imprisoned inside their own villages and cities with all kinds of measures that have been put in place had to be put in place to keep them in there for instance jail sentences if they try and leave or come into zones that they're not allowed to do so. So uh, that is adding to a huge amount of worry in this particular part of the world. Remember also that Europe has open borders, no system of harmonized public health policy. So all kinds of questions for neighboring countries about what that very sudden spread is going to mean. Bear in mind also that patient zero here in Italy hasn't been found. That means, Jake, that essentially we don't know how it got here. We don't know how fast it's spreading and we don't know exactly how far it's spread yet.
0: And as you know, Melissa, parts of Italy are actually literally on lockdown, public events canceled, public buildings uh, shut down. How widespread is the lockdown itself?
3: Well, for the time being, cities like this, Venice, you've seen it because the carnival that was meant to last until Tuesday ended on Sunday night. The basilica behind me has been closed. All the museums in the Veneto region of Italy also closed. Schools have been closed. There is a sense of urgency. Many questions, though, about what happens next and exactly how many towns and cities and how many parts of Italy and how many borders are going to be locked down still. But authorities are really grappling with something new. It is, as you say, that suddenness that has led to the uncertainty. All kinds of questions about what happens next and exactly how far this is going to go with authorities here essentially now several weeks after what happened in Asia grappling with that fundamental question of how to ensure that public health is insured, public safety is insured, but panic isn't, doesn't set in too quickly and the economy is protected as well, Jake.
0: All right, Melissa Bell and Venice, Italy. Thank you. So much and stay safe, please. Coming up, Senator Bernie Sanders looking to deal a decisive blow in the next few days. Could Super Tuesday be his kryptonite or could it seal his victory? And are we seeing the real lesson President Trump learned from impeachment? His plans to clear the way of all opposition within his own administration. Stay with us. And we're back with the 2020 lead in a pivotal nine days that could make or break the presidential dreams of any number of candidates, while Senator, Cerny, Senator Bernie Sanders cements his frontrunner status. We have CNN town halls with the candidates starting tonight. Then there's a presidential debate tomorrow, the South Carolina primary on Saturday, Super Tuesday, a week from tomorrow, 15 states. Voting in this eight-day time period with more than a third of all delegates up for grabs. And as CNN's Jessica Dean reports from the campaign trail, Bernie Sanders' campaign is upping its efforts in South Carolina, looking to deliver a death blow to his Democratic competitors.
4: Democratic frontrunner Senator Bernie Sanders riding high after a blowout win in Nevada.
5: Now, I've been hearing, you know, the establishment is getting a little bit nervous about our campaign.
4: With a recent CBS News YouGov poll showing Sanders at a striking distance of former Vice President Joe Biden in South Carolina, the Vermont senator is looking to build on his momentum in the Palmetto State and beyond into Super Tuesday. Biden is hoping to halt Sanders' progress.
6: As I said all along, it's not just can you beat Donald Trump, can you bring along, can you keep a Democratic House of Representatives in the United States Congress, and can you bring along a Democratic Senate?
4: Sanders pushed back against questions about his electability, going so far as to read his own poll numbers at a rally in Texas, a Super Tuesday contest.
5: General election, CBS, Sanders 47, Trump 44. In the key battleground states, Michigan, Sanders 48, Trump 41.
4: Still, Sanders' rivals now even more aggressive in their attacks, Former mayor Pete Buttigieg saying the Democratic nominee should be, quote, galvanizing, not polarizing.
6: But I also believe that the way we will build the movement to defeat Donald Trump is to call people into our tent, not to call them names online.
7: I want to have someone heading up this ticket. Who's going to lead our party so that we win not just the presidency, but the House of Representatives as well as the U.S. Senate. As Sanders
4: strengthens his position in the primary, he's also drawing scrutiny for his comments to 60 Minutes, offering a partial defense of Fidel Castro's Cuban revolution.
5: We're very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba. But, you know, you gotta, it's unfair to simply say everything is bad. You know, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing? Even though Fidel Castro did it? A lot of dissidents imprisoned in in That's right. And we condemn that.
4: Those remarks drawing criticism from Florida Democrats, including first term Congresswoman Debbie McCarcel Powell, who called them, quote, absolutely unacceptable. Now, the Biden, Buttigieg and Bloomberg campaigns also criticizing Sanders' comments about Cuba. And interesting, a Bloomberg advisor telling my colleague Dan Merica that tomorrow night's debate should be about one candidate, Bernie Sanders, that they really see tomorrow as their last best chance to really go after his record and ideas before Super Tuesday. Jake.
0: He 's been the front runner for months i 'm glad they 're finally realizing that Jessica Dean, yeah. thanks so much uh, let 's talk about this all and with this with this front runner status finally uh, dawning on some of these candidates, Uh, Bernie Sanders is getting a lot of scrutiny. There's this new digital um, video from the Bloomberg uh, campaign, Aisha, attacking Sanders' record on guns, uh, saying that it's a potential weak point for Sanders in the primary. He has in the past been a supporter uh, of uh, pro-gun measures. Do you think this actually could hurt him, even though he's since changed his position?
7: I think that this is his record, and it's smart to call it out. He is the front-runner. And so when we get uh, to the debates tomorrow night, I think on the stage, people are going to come after him about it um, as well. What's interesting, though, is the point that you originally made about how people finally figured out that Bernie <laughs> Sanders is the front frontrunner um, and are coming after him. Last I
0: th- debate, they were, all after, uh, they were all going after Bloomberg.
7: Right, because he's spending all the money. But the truth is, is that Bernie Sanders right now is the only person who's really creating a groundswell and a movement, a movement in this country. Other candidates might have some good polling. They might raise raising some money. But he's got people power behind him. And that's what folks are attacking, is his people power. And I think that it's to a detriment of the Democratic Party, because we're going to need that engine of enthusiasm come uh, November to actually beat Donald Trump. So I wonder if the attacking of Bernie Sanders is actually attacking his people, and those people ultimately are suppressed at the end of the day.
0: Hmm, interesting. Uh, and Patrick, it's not just Democrats saying that. it's uh, Some Republicans are looking at Sanders and the people behind him and saying, who knows what's going to happen? This guy might actually be able to give the president a run for his money. Here's uh, Senator Tim Scott, a Republican from South Carolina. Take a listen.
4: Do you think that Bernie Sanders is the biggest threat to President Trump right
7: now?
5: I do think so. If there is a second choice other than himself, it would be Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders brings that outside game in a similar fashion that President Trump did in 2016. What do you think?
8: Uh, I think that Bernie uh, Sanders is Donald Trump's biggest problem. I think he's Donald Trump, Jake, from the other side of the room. Look, they are they're, they're two very loud, very angry populists, um, both of them will make this much more a screaming act than a thoughtful sort of campaign about policy. But more importantly, Bernie Sanders' socialist issue, which you know the president will bring up again and again, that's half the problem. His bigger problem is the hypocrite issue, I think. And as a white hot light of sort of front runnership is on him right now, When he's asked to explain socialism or he's asked about his gun votes and challenged by Bloomberg, it's kind of hard to explain the way socialism works because it doesn't work and it's never worked. The math doesn't add up. It's going to get tougher and tougher.
6: I mean, look, there's so many, you know, crocodile tears about uh, from Trumpistas about running against Bernie Sanders, because guess what? Spoiler alert. They want to run against Bernie Sanders. (laughs) Um, so, you know, t- you know, t- Tim Scott, you can bring up parallels about play to the base populists that excite the base and that nobody thought would have a chance of being president. And here they come into front runner status. The parallels stop about there, uh, particularly when you look at just the basic electability. There's a reason Republicans want to run against Bernie Sanders. He's their dream. He's their bumper sticker they've been running against in phantom form forever. He also makes something like Florida look a lot less likely with comments um, from uh, from about Castro the other night. Look. We've had two caucuses. Play to the base, folks do well there. We've had one primary in a state where Sanders neighbors. South Carolina is going to be a big test. Mm-hmm. He pulled together an impressive win in Nevada, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. And after that, it's Super Tuesday. I would argue that the reason the Democrats haven't gone after him is because they're afraid of alienating his base. They realize he's motivated a movement yeah, that's probably that had not worked yet.
0: And Melanie, it's South Carolina is really important, not just for Bernie Sanders. It's really important for Vice President Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Uh, Here he I- is. Uh, a lot of people saying he needs to win South Carolina, or his campaign's dead. Uh, take a listen.
9: South Carolina, though, is your fireball.
6: You've said I mean, it, my firewall. I've never the said the campaign it. has no, said it's your no, firewall. it's not fire. I said I'm going to do well there.
0: I just said I've never said that South Carolina was his firewall. Was is that is that true?
6: And hmm. I think I have a real firewall in South Carolina. <laughs>
7: So the, the <laughs> hypocrisy so, of all the candidates, yeah. there are receipts and tapes I mean, for everything they say. Hey,
0: look, I understand you don't want to set expectations and then not not meet them. But, I mean, he did say it was his firewall.
10: He did say that. And perhaps he's trying to downplay it because there are serious cracks in that firewall. And make no mistake, Biden and his campaign are banking on support from black voters in South Carolina to propel him to victory in this primary. And we have seen polls that have come up. The Wall Street Journal and NBC just had a poll last week that said the level of support between Sanders and Biden on the ground there is actually the same level of support. So mm. if they are making inroads with black voters. Steyer's also catching up to him in the polls. Um, so perhaps he's trying to temper expectations. Um, but.
7: He just needs to hold on to that. Yeah. The Biden campaign has been very strategic about that. If you saw this weekend, the talking points now from the Biden camp are trying to really show Bernie Sanders being anti-Obama and that he was going to primary Obama in 2012 mm-hmm. and doing that in a very um, interesting time because we're going to South Carolina and wanting to pull some of that, that black vote away from But, but that Sanders. momentum,
8: Jake, you cannot – this momentum is hard to erase. Mike Bloomberg waiting to get in, other Democrats hoping to stay in. Bernie's got momentum and he's doing it in maybe only in three places, but Nevada was a good show of black, brown supporters other than white supporters, New Hampshire and Iowa. Very, very hard to turn this around. I'll tell you this. Joe Biden has to win tomorrow. And that comment was downright Trumpian. That on, was a great uh, bit of
0: take on, on, on Saturday. Yeah, the, the South Carolina primary. Everyone stick around. We've got more to talk about. You can hear more from Democratic presidential candidates, Senator Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Tom Steyer tonight in CNN live town halls in South Carolina. It all starts at 9 p.m. Eastern. And then uh, Wednesday night, a second night of CNN town halls with former Mayor Michael Bloomberg and former Vice President Joe Biden, Senators Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. Coming up, the loyalty list. New details on President Trump's plan to surround himself with yes. People stay with us. In our politics lead, a Trump advisor tells CNN that Trump allies have been working on a running list of people inside the Trump administration who they consider to be never Trumpers. Since his Senate acquittal, the president has been on something of a vengeance tour, firing anyone viewed as disloyal during the Ukraine scandal. But now the president wants to go even further and is telling aides he wants only loyalists working in key positions. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, it appears a purge is coming.
11: For a president obsessed with loyalty, Donald Trump is on a new pursuit to weed out staffers who aren't devoted enough.
8: I want loyalty to the United States of America.
11: Sources say Trump has told aides he wants fewer people working for him and only those who are aggressively advancing his agenda. Since he took office, the president's allies have given him hiring and firing suggestions based on how loyal the candidates are. And Trump appears to be reviewing those in his post-impeachment purge.
12: Look, if there are any lists, I've not seen them, but the fact is, we know there are people actively working against this president.
11: As first reported by Axios, conservative figures like Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, are giving Trump these lists as an appeal to his need for loyalty. It's left some officials worried about false attacks.
8: He's more worried about someone who has personal loyalty than he does about worried about getting the facts.
11: The president already has multiple aides serving in acting capacities, including his chief of staff, who didn't make the 8,000-mile trip to India after catching a cold. Mick Mulvaney's absence may not have been noticed much by Trump, who has been surrounded by singers, dancers, and even a marching band on camels since arriving. For a president who loves crowd sizes, Prime Minister Modi hoped to leave a lasting impression.
5: Namaste, Trump. Namaste,
12: Trump! Namaste, Trump! From this day on, India will always hold a very special place in our hearts.
11: As he rallied supporters and toured the Taj Mahal at sunset, Trump made no mention of the Indian Prime Minister's new religious test for migrants that's facing intense criticism. And he signaled a possible trade deal wasn't ready to be signed just yet.
12: Everybody loves him, but I will tell you this, he's very tough.
11: Now, Jake, the president has threatened in the past to get rid of staffers he believes are disloyal to him without taking any real mass action. But sources close to him say they feel like this time is different. And one thing they're pointing to is the fact that he put a loyalist who was once marched out of the White House in charge of the personnel office.
0: All right, Kaylin Collins, thank you so much namaste trump everyone <laughs> um give the translation again what does it See, mean the namaste? love
7: and the light in me bows to the love and the light in you and there's no love or light in that man so i don't even know how they said so that, i right. just
0: needed the translation yeah. but i appreciate it don't so so, it. so uh, um, john <laughs> john take a listen to white house deputy press secretary hogan gidley asked about this potential purge that we're told is coming
12: It's not a secret that we want people in positions that work with this president, not against him. And there are a lot of folks out there working against this president. If we find them, we'll take appropriate action. So I guess the question is, what does it mean
0: to be working against the president? Obviously, somebody who is spreading state secrets or trying to get the Trump
6: agenda not implemented. I understand that. But is that what it means, you think? No, it's not. And that's why what we're hearing and seeing is different than what other presidents do. Look, most administrations are staffed by people. Who support the president. It almost goes without saying. The standard here is different. And you might, you know, Hogan may ask himself what the statute of limitations on criticizing the president is. Uh, How rigorously will this be applied? Um, But this is a purge. This is something paranoid. US presidents don't do purges. This one apparently does. And there's a word for places that ask for unquestioning loyalty to the leader. They're called cults. Mm-hmm. They're not called the Oval Office of the White House of the United States. So this is a departure from our best traditions. The fact that Jenny Thomas, the Supreme Court just, uh, Justice's wife, is apparently involved in this makes it all the more bizarre. Uh, Melanie, take a listen to
0: Senator uh, Chris Van Hollen, uh, Democrat uh, of Maryland. To purge
6: people who may have an alternative viewpoint on a particular issue is very dangerous. When you start screening out facts in advance because you're afraid the president just doesn't want to hear them, That obviously presents risks to the country.
0: And that seems to be what, remember, Admiral William McRaven, uh, the former SEAL team commander and head of special ops, was uh, getting at when he wrote an op-ed for The Washington Post, criticizing President Trump, forcing out the director of national intelligence, Joe McGuire, for saying things that the president didn't like, such as he thought that the whistleblower uh, acted with integrity.
10: Right. And it's more than just about installing loyalists around him. This is about sending a clear message after impeachment. And that is, don't cross me, don't challenge me, and don't blow the whistle on me. Because remember, the whole Ukraine scandal came to light, not just because of a whistleblower complaint, but because of these career officials who were willing to testify publicly. And so this could have a real chilling effect. It's also very dangerous to have yes-men in these intel positions yeah. where you need to have people that are willing to tell you things you don't always want to hear.
0: And Patrick, don't, don't you think President Trump is somebody not unlike every other president who needs people around him to push back or give him counter, countervailing of viewpoints on things?
8: I think so, Jake, but he's never been that guy. <laughs> That's right? for sure. I mean, this is a guy who keeps his own counsel. He is, uh, I think his mantra, especially post-impeachment, is only the paranoid survive. And it's very, very clear here that you would expect loyalty. You would expect that of people in the administration. But what's more clear here is that he's a little sensitive since this particular impeachment effort. He's angry and concerned. And this is going to continue. This idea of we're going to purge them and then we're going to find them or sort of root them out and find is a little troubling. Bottom line, I think people need to think hard because it never ends very well with this president when you've worked for It, it just and, doesn't.
0: And Aisha, a Trump advisor telling CNN that Ginny Thomas, as John noted, uh, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, is leading this effort to compile a list of officials viewed as never-Trumpers. Uh, and this Trump advisor tells CNN, quote, many people have sent names to Ginny to make sure the right people are on her list. Now, she's not part of the Trump administration. She's a conservative uh, activist. Uh, so this is this is not even you know being done within the confines of the White House.
7: Yeah, I think that we all should be extremely alarmed about what's happening with our democracy right now. The fact that um, the president is constantly talking about loyalty to him, loyalty to him, loyalty to him, as opposed to loyalty to the United States of America, and like, under oath, doing your job um, uh, on behalf of the American people is what's problematic, and this is how a democracy breaks down when we don't acknowledge the fact that this guy really seems to be moving and moving and moving closer to acting like a dictator, as opposed to the head of the, the free world in our country. And it's 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 actually, we should be afraid and, and alarmed.
0: And John, just one last point, and I'm coming to you on this, is one house one White House aide said some jobs won't be filled until after the president wins re-election as high-level hires will be re- likely to, reluctant to take posts that might, might not last longer than eight months. But moreover, there's been other reporting saying that McEntee, the new head of personnel who was uh, escorted out under John Kelly and yeah. now is back, that he, you know, that he's really going to do his dramatic actions after the president is re-elected. So in other
6: the president is still fairly Constrained right now. Well, the president is constrained by the Constitution. Second term presidents are notoriously unconstrained. The problem is you have got a government to run. Um, and, and waiting it to fill it with loyalists who, who will not follow democratic who will disregard democratic norms and be afraid to face facts with a president. That's dangerous for the Republic in a different way. That's the breakdown of democratic governance in terms of just getting the ball down the field. If people are afraid to raise uncomfortable facts to the presidents, you're not gonna have a good decision-making process. That's gonna trickle down from the White House to the intelligence community. We've got a pandemic coming, potentially. We've got real challenges happening uh, in our elections as well with foreign interference, whatever whatever the degree of the uh, targeting may be. You need people who are willing to communicate facts.
0: Everyone stick around. This yeah. just in, believe it or not, a new update to the Nevada caucuses results. 100 percent of the precincts now reporting. The results show Senator Bernie Sanders with a solid first place finish, 46.8 percent. Joe Biden in second place at 20.2 percent. He's followed by Buttigieg in third at 14.3 percent. Senator Elizabeth Warren finishing fourth at 9.7 percent. Coming up, the president's national security advisor is now saying Russia is not interfering in the election to get President Trump reelected. What kind of analysis is he offering? Can we trust it? Stay with us. Now we're back with the politics lead. A national security official in the Trump administration had sharp words for National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, who went on two Sunday shows and deviated from intelligence estimates, this official tells me, by suggesting that the Russians are definitively trying to get Bernie Sanders elected president.
6: What I've heard is that, uh, that Russia would like Bernie Sanders to, to win the Democrat nomination. They'd probably like him to be president. Uh, understandably, because he wants to to spend money on social programs and probably would have to take it out of the military. So that would make sense.
0: But according to the national security official, that's not what the intelligence says. The official told me the intelligence right now shows that the Russians are trying to boost Sanders as a way of sowing discord in the Democratic primaries, but the Russians have no actual preference. The officials added that the Russians believe that they can work with Trump. They see him as transactional, but they don't prefer him either. Neither Trump nor Sanders, the official said. But that's not what the national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, said.
6: Well, there are these reports that they, they want Bernie Sanders uh, to get elected president. That's no surprise. He, he honeymooned him Moscow.
0: Again, that is not what the intelligence says, according to the national security official that I spoke with. So what accounts for the national security advisor misrepresenting the intelligence and taking potshots at Bernie Sanders like that? Quote, Perhaps his first instincts are more political than that of a national security professional, the official told me, adding, quote, by saying that, O'Brien injected himself into the campaign by commenting on a potential rival. If he's willing to say that as national security adviser, what does that mean for the next nine months? And what is he doing when the camera is not on him? Joining me now to discuss intelligence, the Russians and politicizing all of it is Steve Hall, a three decade veteran of the CIA who served as the Russian station chief for the agency. Steve, thanks for joining us. So as you heard, a senior national security official told me that perhaps O'Brien's first instincts are more political than that of a traditional national security professional. What do you think?
12: Well, Jake, that's certainly been my experience. Uh, I have been in the room with and, and had, you know, been involved in meetings with a number of national security advisors. And I, I was trying to think back to a time when one of them sort of inserted him or herself into domestic politics in a strong fashion. And it's just not the norm. I mean, the focus of the national security advisor is almost always, you know, foreign affairs, foreign events that could threaten the security of the of the United States. So I would have to uh, agree with your source uh, who said this is very unusual for a national security advisor to inject themselves into a campaign like this.
0: The concern that the national security official I spoke with uh, voiced also was what impact uh, does this have on the advice or the presentations uh, of intelligence that Mr. O'Brien gives to President Trump?
12: Yeah, that's, that's a real grave concern that I have with these, this sort of purging that we're seeing now in the administration and the staffing of really critical jobs Uh, with people that are really political partisans. There are certain positions, obviously, in an administration where that's appropriate. Um, But when you have, for example, the DNI, the National Security Advisor, uh, those are people who need to bring the facts uh, to the administration, to the president, to senior policymakers, in a very dry, mathematical, concise way so that policy can then be derived as it should be. Uh, But when you've got people who have concerns, political concerns, uh, about the administration or what the administration might react to if they hear, for example, a bad piece of intelligence or something they don't like, that's really damaging to the, to the national security of this country when you have that kind of politicization going on.
0: Uh, Bernie Sanders confirmed that he received uh, this uh, briefing uh, that Russia was trying to boost his campaign as, way, as a way of disrupting the Democratic primaries. Explain to people who might be confused why it would make sense that they wouldn't have a preference, but they would try to boost Sanders and that ultimately they might also boost other candidates, including the president.
8: Sure.
12: I think to answer that question so that folks understand what we're talking about, is you have to ask yourself, what is the key geopolitical goal? What is the most important strategic goal that Vladimir Putin has? And the most important goal that he has is not that a Democrat or that a Republican or that a particular individual even wins the presidency in the United States. It is weakening U.S. democracy. It is playing on the social and political things that that, that drive us apart. So if you start from there and then you say, OK, who is the best person uh, in in the Russians' view to help sort of bring the United States to its knees in that sense, it makes sense that it's Donald Trump. I mean, this is this is somebody who has not taken a particularly strong view against Russia and who is by far the most polarizing and divisive person, uh, certainly politician, public person uh, in this country. But it also makes sense for them to try to sow chaos on the other side as well, perhaps Put out the word that we're supporting Bernie Sanders or somebody like that. That just causes American citizens to stop and think, is this whole process screwed up or, or is it actually working? It's, it's an American problem. It's not a Democrat problem or a Republican problem. It is a problem for the entire country because we're being attacked by Russia.
0: All right, Steve Hall, thank you so much for your expertise, as always. Coming up in our 2020 lead, or actually we'll do it right now, in our 2020 lead, Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes asked Senator Bernie Sanders about comments he made in the 1980s about Cuban dictator Fidel Castro transforming Cuban society with education and health care. Here's part of Sanders' response on 60 Minutes.
5: We're very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba. But, you know, you gotta, it's unfair to simply say everything is bad. You know, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing, even though Fidel Castro did it?
0: Sanders' Democratic opponents took issue with those comments, as did some Democratic lawmakers from South Florida, where there is a large Cuban-American community, such as freshman Congresswoman Debbie Mukhersel Powell. She called Sanders' comment, quote, absolutely unacceptable. And Congresswoman Donna Shalala, who suggested that Sanders talk to her constituents before, quote, singing the praises of a murderous tyrant, unquote. And as CNN's Sarah Murray reports for us now, this is not the only Bernie Sanders foreign policy controversy that is causing consternation right now among more moderate Democrats.
13: Senator Bernie Sanders is snubbing the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee's annual meeting, accusing the powerful pro-Israel lobbying group of providing a platform for bigotry. I remain concerned about the platform AIPAC provides for leaders who express bigotry and oppose basic Palestinian rights. For that reason, I will not attend their conference, Sanders tweeted. APAC shot back, defending the event and saying Sanders has never attended anyway. Senator Sanders is insulting his very own colleagues and the millions of Americans who stand with Israel. Truly shameful. The heated exchange highlights the Vermont senator's willingness to criticize the government of Israel more starkly than any other leading presidential candidate ever has.
5: It is not anti-Semitism to say that the Netanyahu government has been racist.
13: Sanders, who would be the first ever Jewish presidential nominee from a major party, is advocating for what he calls a more even-handed approach to dealing with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict.
5: What American foreign policy has got to be about is in the Middle East bringing the Israelis, bringing the Palestinians together. It cannot just simply be a one that we're just pro-Israel and we ignore the needs of the Palestinian people. We've got to pay attention to both.
13: Polling shows Democrats' sympathy toward Israel has weakened in recent years, and that's particularly true among progressive Democrats. But Sanders has faced criticism from supporters of Israel on both sides of the aisle for embracing campaign surrogates with more extreme anti-Israel views than the candidate they're backing. Congresswomen Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in Congress, have both thrown their support behind Sanders. But they've also faced blowback from their own party about their views on Israel and their support for the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, which calls for putting economic and political pressure on Israel for its actions toward Palestinians. Some Israel supporters say singling out the Jewish state for such a boycott is anti-Semitic. Sanders has also faced backlash for surrogates such as Palestinian-American activist Linda Sarsour and Amar Zar, a Palestinian-American law professor and comedian. Mark Melman, president of the Democratic Majority for Israel, an advocacy group that ran ads against Sanders, has urged Sanders to distance himself from those supporters.
8: Bernie Sanders says he wants to combat anti-Semitism, but he has appointed to official positions in his campaigns people who have made, repeatedly made, anti-Semitic statements and refused to disavow those statements, and that is deeply troubling.
13: Zarsour was ousted, along with others, from the board of the Women's March amid accusations of anti-Semitism. And Zar has come under fire for tweets like this one from 2016, which he later deleted, comparing Israel to ISIS. Now, Linda Sarsour and Amar have both denied that they are anti-Semitic. And I actually spoke by phone with Amar who said part of the reason he supports Bernie Sanders is he believes that Sanders is changing the conversation on this issue at the presidential level. Jake.
0: All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Breaking today, the jury delivering its verdict against the disgraced movie producer Harvey Weinstein. What's next for Weinstein? That's coming up. Stay with us. Disgraced Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein is behind bars after a New York jury found him guilty on two of the five charges he was facing. This comes after more than 26 hours of jury deliberations, four weeks on trial and as CNN's Bryn Grass reports for us, emotional testimony from multiple women who accused the once powerful media mogul of sexual assault and rape
9: guilty. The verdict bringing redemption for the two women at the heart of this case and likely for dozens of others who accused Harvey Weinstein of various unwanted sexual acts over decades. The disgraced movie mogul handcuffed and led out of a New York City courtroom after a jury convicted him on two sex crime charges.
12: This is the new landscape for survivors of sexual assault in America, I believe. And this is a new day.
9: After a month-long trial, the jury acquitted Weinstein on the more serious charges against him, predatory sexual assault and first-degree rape. The panel of seven men and five women deliberated for 26 and a half hours over five days, trying to make sense of very complicated jury instructions, ultimately convicting Weinstein of a criminal sexual act against Miriam Haley, who said Weinstein forced oral sex on her in 2006, and also rape in the third degree of Jessica Mann who says Weinstein raped her in 2013. Actresses Ashley Judd and Rosanna Arquette, among the more than 80 women who have accused Weinstein of sexual misconduct, both reacted to the verdict, thanking the women who testified for their bravery. This is the age of empowerment of women. And you cannot intimidate them anymore. The verdict suggests jurors believed the testimony of those two women, but struggled with the testimony of Annabella Sciorra. Sciorra, most known for her role in The Sopranos, accused Weinstein of raping her in the mid-90s. Her case didn't fit within the statute of limitations, but prosecutors hoped to use her testimony to prove that Weinstein had a pattern of behavior. Weinstein could face more than two decades in prison. Weinstein's attorneys say they plan to appeal.
13: He was as strong as he has been throughout all of this. Um, obviously, he's disappointed, and obviously, he he has maintained his innocence from the beginning. So, you know, it's it's a tough tough to sit there and you know, kind of, I put my my hand on his arm, and it's a it's a it's a tough thing, not not the way we
4: wanted today to end.
13: Now Harvey Weinstein
9: is booked at Rikers here in New York City. He has an inmate number. Where in the facility he's being housed is not clear because the Department of Corrections here in New York City doesn't release that information. However, his defense attorneys, Jake, fought to have him in a special unit uh, for an infirmary, citing his back pain and other chronic issues. Uh, He will be back, though, in court for his sentencing next month. Jake.
0: All right, Brynji Grass, Gress, uh, outside the courthouse, thank you so much. Michael Jordan uh, leads the emotional tribute to Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and all the victims of that horrific chopper crash. Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.